Kia ora and welcome to Green MPs in a Podcast, a weekly podcast interview series where we put your questions to the Green Party MPs and find out a bit more about what excites and inspires them. Well, thanks for joining us. I'm Green MP Gareth Hughes, and this week I'm with Materia Ture. I'm really excited to be interviewing you, Matt. You're our longest serving MP. You live in a castle, you play in a band, <laughs> you've got such a fascinating and varied history, and of course, you're the co leader. How's it going? Uh, it's going good. It's going good. It's a nice, calm day today, which yeah. is very unusual in politics at the moment. Well, Parliament uh, finished yesterday for the week, mm-hmm. and what do you got up for the weekend? Oh, this weekend I've got. Uh, Actually, I'm recording a video for um, for one of the bands that I'm in, which is going to be really exciting. We've already recorded six songs, and so this is the first of the videos for those songs. And uh, we've got Dunedin um, Greens are having their provincial quiz night on Sunday, which is also going to be exciting. And um, I'll probably lose because I'm terrible at quiz nights for some reason. And yeah, hopefully a bit of time at home. That sounds really cool. You uh, entered Parliament in 2002, you were elected co-leader in 2009, and you're currently our spokesperson for Building and Housing, Inequality and Justice. Over the years, you've had such a range of portfolios. I remember you doing Oceans and Tertiary. I know, the list is enormous. What's the one you've never had that you'd love to have had? Oh, that's a good question. Um, what haven't I had? <laughs> um, obviously, I've had lots of the environmental ones. I've never had primary industries and I think it would be really interesting because my dad was a labourer and worked on farms a lot and stuff. There's a whole conversation about in agriculture in particular but also just in general primary industries about that workforce Mm. Um, and it's not the rich workforce, it's not the landowners, it's not the farmers with a capital F, it's all the people that work for them and they are often quite invisible in the conversations about um, about work, about the natural resources on which they rely as part yep, of their yep. jobs. So um, that would be fascinating, but it would be, yeah, I'm, I'm interested more in the workforce aspect of it. Mm. Hey, well, we normally start by looking at a topical issue, but since I'm interviewing the boss, oh, I thought let's do a sort I of... I love a, it when people say that. Well, let's do like a year <laughs> in review uh, sort of okay. piece to start off with. What, what's been the highlight for you for 2016? Oh, God, the highlight. Um, oh, there's been a heap. Um, uh Oh, uh, <laughs> trying to get my head around all the things that we've been doing in the last 12 months. Um, I think we're the, we've launched some really amazing campaigns over this year, actually, and this was the year when we would do that, right? So we've had the Green Cities campaign, we've had the Water campaign, which has been amazing across the country. Um, there's been uh, so um, the work that Jen Logie's been doing on pay equity, for example, has also been really, it's gotten right through to um, women in particular, right at the heart of the work that they're doing, the compassionate work they do and their rights to decent pay. Um, so there's been, we've just been pumping out ideas and ideas and new information and new solutions. And that was the purpose of this year yeah. um, in the lead up to the election. And I think we've, we've done that really well. And I guess the big political change has been signing an MOU with Labour. Uh, how's that going? If, you know, I guess a year on. Yeah, no, it has. Um, so the MOU was a really big step in the political changes in our political relationships, um, and it's really good to have sent a really clear message to the public that we want to work with Labour to change the government, and that Labour has agreed to that. I mean, I think this is you know people asked us for this um, at the last election for this sense of certainty and clarity, and I think we've delivered that. Um, the relationship is going really well. The media, I think, are really struggling with it. I think we've seen that this week, how they really struggled to understand what it means to have an ongoing relationship um, 
Well, it's really common for parties and other MMP environments around the world to, to work together, you know, whether yeah, yeah, yeah. a shared sort of vision or... Yeah, no, it's totally normal. And it's totally normal in government. The thing is, what I think is weirding the media out is that it's uh, normal in government, but it's not normal in opposition. So uh, they're really yeah, struggling yeah. to understand that, that you can actually have cooperative relationships in opposition um, and you, you don't have to be kind of, you know, over the top about it. Um, and I think that's that's the, the shift that's been made, and that we've made it. One of the things the Greens have been fantastic at is using MMP to challenge the system and to come up with new ideas about how to work together. We've had cooperation agreements with government, we've had MOU agreements with government, we've got MOU now with another um, opposition party. So, you know, we're really challenging the paradigm about the two-party system, which is often still in people's minds. So what's been your low light from 2016? Uh, I, I don't think... I, well... Uh, losing um, Kevin Haig was certainly a low light, only because he's been around for a long time and um, you know he's been a really good ally on green issues for such a long time. But you know, with Russell going to Greenpeace and Kevin going to um, Forest and Bird, it's quite nice that we still have this. We clearly have this strong connection still to those activist organisations in the environment. I think that's really good, um, and I'm really pleased that. It signals that the activist organisations outside of Parliament still see us as part of that network. And I think that's an incredibly valuable set of relationships with the Greens in the environment, but in the social sphere as well. Um, we need to be part of that on-the-ground network that's that's making change too. Cool. Hey, well, ultimately, though, this is a podcast about material terrain, not right. just the Greens. So let's start it's at the beginning. It's easier talking about the Greens than <laughs> it's about myself, you know. But, but let's discuss your background. And I remember a few years ago, you gave this tremendously powerful and honest speech to Parliament about your dad and growing up. Oh, yes. Where did you grow up and what was that like? So I grew up in a very working-class Māori family. Um, and because I got a posh job, people don't think that, which is quite weird. Um, well, you were famously sort of uh, focused on for your jacket. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Famously rich and famous. It's weird. Um, so, and he was a labourer all his life um, and worked all around the Manawatu. So that's where we lived, just moving around, really. Um, and things were you know, actually really difficult for a working class Māori family, especially in the 70s. Um, and mum and dad worked really hard to tr- find stability for us, but it was, it was tricky. So um, we moved around a lot. Um, we were not a political family. We didn't talk about politics and stuff. Um, I remember my friend coming to stay with me uh, when her parents were going off to a protest for the Springbok tour. I, we didn't really know anything about it at the time. Um, but in the 80s, there was that big radical economic shift. And uh, the effect of it wasn't political for us. It was economic. Like, everybody we knew lost their jobs. Dad lost his job. We just... We, we ended up um, living in a bus and travelling around the country looking for work um, when we were kids. So it was just this big, suddenly just everything went bad and super, super hard. Um, and that, it was at the end of that period, in the late 80s, that the political aspect of it became apparent. Mm. And I got involved with the Unemployed Rights um, Network, which was amazing, amazing experience of political awareness and really understanding how government decisions can really mess with families if the government doesn't have any idea what families are really going through. And in researching this, you, you said you became a solo mum at 22 and you needed to find a career to care for your daughter and you used yeah. the training allowance, went through law school, graduated uh, Auckland Uni and went, became a commercial lawyer at Simpson Greer. So yep. a lawyer, why did you pick to become a lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> it was a weird confluence of things. It was, it was 
my friend and I had applied for a job at the Human Rights Commission to do advocacy because we were had both done it in community organisations and they said, no, we were not going to take you and you need to get um, a piece of paper saying you've got skills and we would be looking for people with law degrees. And I was like, oh, God. And then my friend, my other friend, who didn't in the end, but decided that she was going to apply for law school. And I thought, well... These people over here saying I need to get a law degree in order to do the work I'm already doing. And my friend, who I'm sure I'm as smart as she is, I'm sure I must be, is going to apply for law school, so maybe I should have a go. Um, so I had a go, <laughs> and they took me. Well, it's really valuable for caucus because you put out all these legal words and terms, which is great. And it's quite funny when your brain is legally trained, um, but, yeah... When your brain is legally trained, but your heart is not, it's a weird thing, actually. It's it's an interesting tool. And then the, the law stuff becomes this incredible tool that you can use. Um, and that's that's what I found most valuable about the law degree. Jeez, I wish I'd done a little bit of law before I entered Parliament. <laughs> I don't know a part or a clause or a section or anything. <laughs> but you're also quite the contradiction because you became a commercial lawyer at Simpson Grierson. Yeah. But you're also a founding member of the Random Trollops performing oh, yes. group and a candidate for the McGillagutty Serious Party yeah. in 1993. Twice, actually. Twice? I was on the list in 99, although I wasn't doing anything. But, yeah, no, it's, well... um, Have you always sort of had those two sides to your personality history? uh, Yeah, I never... uh, Yes, will be the answer now that I'm old and can look back on it. Um, (laughs) At the time, I never thought I was particularly creative, but ended up... But I've always been able to make things, and... um, and I quite like stuff that's a bit subversive. So that just all comes together. But yeah, and the Random Trollops was fantastic. It was an anarcho-feminist performance troupe. And so we were all involved in the anarchist movement at the time and then wanted to have a bit of a laugh. So, <laughs> so we got together and made up all this like stupid skits and stuff. And we did a tour, the Smash the Phallocentric Hierarchy tour <laughs> of um, <laughs> New Zealand, which we started in Christchurch and made our way back up north. Uh, you know, with varying levels of success, but it was enormous amounts of fun to do that. Well, I, I don't think many people know this either, but you were the Chloe Swarbrick of the 2001 <laughs> <laughs> Auckland Council quite, mayoral election. I was quite a bit older than Chloe at the time, so, you know, she still she still wins on age. Yeah, sure. yeah. Yep. So what made the jump from sort of, you know, performance activism, the McGillagutty Serious Party, which I guess had a serious message, which was how unfair the political system yeah. was. But what made you make the jump to the Green Party? Oh, it was it was now in nineteen ninety nine. I um I graduated that year. I was also that was the first year I was working for SG for Simpson Grierson, and I got married that year and acquired two additional children. So <laughs> I decided ninety nine would be my year of political silence, and I would just focus on working, taking care of my family, you know, building this home in this whole new kind of um, family environment that we had. But it was also, unfortunately, the year of the 99 election and Nanda was standing for the Greens and the Greens were standing on their own for the first time. And so he called and asked me if I would help, but I had to say no because I really had to focus on my, on my kids. So, um, so I said no, but I watched it really, really closely and I was, it, I was really jealous and I really, you know, you kind of, you see it and you just, it's kind of in your blood. So um, Immediately, my year ended of silence ended was um, February of 2000. So I joined the Greens in February of 2000, yeah. and um, helped to work on their treaty policy because that I'd done quite a bit of treaty work and quite a bit of treaty work with um, 
parochial organisations and there's some real pitfalls if you're not careful. So I thought I'll come and help out then, but I, I missed the election campaign. Yeah. I guess my story was kind of similar because I was 18, you know, it was the first election I got to vote. Yeah. And just seeing Nandor sort of blow away all the cobwebs out of Parliament, oh. it, it was transformational for me and I, yeah. I think I signed up probably at the same time because it was just inspiring to yeah. see something different happening. Yeah, that's right. Somebody who talked like us, thought like us, believed the same things, did the same things, just like... Yeah, I know, just, and you could get the sense that you could take it over, that it was, you know, that Patty Smith thing, if we created it, let's take it over. It's like, yeah, totally, let's, let's get started. Yeah, well now you're a sort of well-known Dalidan local, and you famously <laughs> live in a castle. I've spent a bit of time there, I know it's no Lanark Castle. But can <laughs> no, you no, it's a working men's castle. Can you, can you describe your castle to the listeners? Yeah, so it's a it's an amazing building, built by this um, one man, uh, Terry Shepard, over about uh, 25, 30 years that he lived there. Um, and he's just been gradually turning a little wooden cottage into the stone castle. It's got a turret. It's got crenula, stone crenulations. Um, it's an incredible uh, creative folly. Um, <laughs> nothing that nothing we could have ever done ourselves, but we uh, we kind of treat it like um, you know we're holding it for the future. Yep. You know, and so um, slowly clearing it out and just making it as beautiful as we can. It's not we're not particularly handy, but it, we just love living in the building. It's um, crazy. Well, we've had a number of questions asked online, and Jay Silver eighty six on Reddit asks, "Who would you be prepared to work with to form a government?" Being a relatively minor player, I challenge that, Jay Silver. What, Jay? But what? What would the key negotiation points be in forming a government? Or can you explain oh, the, okay. the process? Yeah, yeah, how would yeah. we go about that? So, um, so there's a few, there's a few things. One of the things we've talked a lot about is um, there's got to be good policy connection. I mean, this is the problem with trying to do anything with national is that their policy framework is so out of whack with what actually has to happen. It's really hard to find the, the areas of common ground. So policy will always be for the Greens the most important thing. It's what we get done um, that matters the most. Um, and it will have to be transformative. There'll have to be some transformative things as well as stuff that we know is going to be incremental and change over time. Um, we said that we want a proportional cabinet. So um, between the parties that form a government, we would want to see proportional representation on the on the cabinet in the cabinet seats. And that's that's just to make sure that there is a real balance, um, and it's not just focused on the leadership, but actually our whole caucus gets a chance to participate in the in the yep. our cabinet. I think it's really important. We've got some amazing talent, of which you are one, Gareth, um, that really needs to be represented around that table. The um, And then in terms of the process, it's just, it's going to come down to numbers. I mean, this is the thing. We, the, our relative strength in any negotiation depends on how big we are. Yep. And, and that's, that's up to the voters to decide on the day. We're changing tack a bit. Gordon McEwen asks on Facebook, we know you play the ukulele and knits, but who taught you? <laughs> oh, hey, Gordon. Um, I learned how to play bass off the YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> no, I learned how to play ukulele. My sister taught me how to play ukulele, which was cool. And then, um, and then I kind of got a bit bored with ukulele, but I quite like the four strings business, partly because the bass is a bit easier. I'm just not that um, dexterous, if that makes sense. So um, she started playing guitar and I started playing the bass because it's still four strings and just learned it off YouTube and playing and learning in public. So just want to say sorry to all those people <laughs> who, who listened to us in those early years because, you know, 
you know, it was a it was a sharing experience of how to learn how to do anything. Mm. Is that what you do for relaxation, or <laughs> yeah. is it cathartic for you? Well, because when I first came here, of course, um, to Parliament, I had to kind of drop everything because it's such a massive learning curve. So you kind of stop doing a whole lot of stuff that you loved, um, and you're never home anyway, so you can't do anything. Um, but I found I got really unhappy not being not having any creative pursuits. Like it actually started to have an impact. Um, so it, uh, between yeah, my sister and my husband actually were the ones who um, encouraged me to get involved in playing music because I could do it really easily and and learn it with them. Um, my husband's been playing guitar for a long time, um, and yeah, it's made a real difference. So uh, I'm in two bands now, but the first one, Kill Martha, was just a really great way to uh, make time to spend with my husband and my sister and our friends who are in the band and to have a creative pursuit and learn new ideas and have this way of really shutting off from politics. But I also think things like um, uh, crafting and creative pursuit and um, playing music and trying to understand it changes the way you think, you know, it uses a yeah. different part of your brain. And for those of us who are in this unbelievably cerebral and really aggressive environment, I think we really it's really good to have this alternative, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess following on from that, what would you say to someone who's looking at standing for parliament next year might get into parliament what's the advice you'd give them and <laughs> someone who's been around these traps for a while uh, um uh, boundaries make boundaries for um for what you can do it feels at first like you can do everything and you feel like and you want to because that's why you have this huge passionate drive to change the world and you will but you just have to make sure that you carve out time for yourself um, and for your families and don't feel stink about it. Um, that would, is really important because it's easy to burn out. I think because also in the Greens too, we're so, we're so committed to the kaupapa that we really feel driven to spend all our time doing this work um, and not taking care of ourselves. The second thing would be you have to grow a really hard skin. One of the things you get good at is, um, is uh, you know, losing arguments. You know, you have to be able to deal with, with, with it when it happens. You have great successes, but you also have big losses. And if you can't cope with the big losses, then it makes it very hard to continue on with the, with the work that you do. So have, growing a, a tough skin is going to be critical. Do you reckon that's more important now in sort of the social media environment? I mean, I've got a whole bunch of trolls who I just ignore on Twitter. Oh, but you, they're relentlessly uh, negative. Yeah. yeah but yeah. I guess in 2002, social media was just sort of taking off. Is it different? Or is, oh, was there more media scrutiny back then? Nothing like this in 2002. We weren't allowed... In 2002... Uh, we weren't allowed to, people were just starting to get um, ac- like major access to new new kinds of cell phones. Um, and uh, we weren't allowed cell phones or we weren't allowed computers in the house. I mean, there was none of that sort of stuff then. Um, yes, you do have to grow a thick skin and you have to, again, you have to set boundaries around what you're prepared to tolerate. Um, I mean, my boundary on social media is uh, people who abuse, who are, you know, violent abuse of others um, that I'm talking to or to me. Um, but also, if they're not actually going to have a conversation, I don't mind having an argument, but it's got to actually be a genuine one, yep, not just yep. yelling. Um, and you don't have to put up with it, because that's what you have, like, defriending for, or whatever the word is. You just, you know, you don't have to talk to people if you don't want to. Yep. <laughs> um, and if they're yelling at you all in caps with exclamation yeah, yeah, marks yeah. and it's being like, really like, rude. You, don't, you really don't have to put up with it. Um, and if you have to leave it alone sometimes, and I've had been in situations like that where you just have to step away for, like, you know, a few days or even a week just to wait for things to calm down because they always do. There's always something new on social media to attract people's attention. 
Well, I, I ignore my trolls all year, but I do send them a Christmas message. So. Oh, do you? Oh, that's really sweet. I just I call them out, like I name mine. So I say, you know, hello, troll. And so that they know and I know, they know that I know that this is bollocks. But if they're still talking, and I've got a few that I, that will talk to me, um, and that's fine. But yeah, don't put up with anything. Hey, well, let's move on, and it's time for my favourite segment, which is a musical interlude. So <laughs> I love finding out about MPs, and we've had such a diverse range of songs and sort of genres picked. Uh, what's your favourite song, and why have you picked it, and what were you doing at that point in your life? Um, well, at the moment, my favourite song, well, it actually has been my favourite for quite a while, is um, Pissing in the River. It's a Patti Smith song. Um, and uh, my husband first turned me on to Patti Smith, and I've been an avid, um, obsessive fan ever since. And her and PJ Harvey, I reckon, it's like uh, up there above everybody else. The um, and the song is, I don't know what what she was thinking when she wrote it, but it's tell it's all I think anyway. It's all about love and sex and this fury at being dumped actually, and it's it's really quite awesome. My bowels are empty, screaming your soul. So looking at politics, parliament and your portfolios, I guess I want to start with a bit of a historical question because I reckon there's been sort of two generations of Green MPs in New Zealand. So there's been, you know, the Rod and Jeanette, first generation, Nandor, who inspired both of us. Uh, Then sort of the second generation, which is you as co-leader with Russell and now James, MPs like Kevin and Catherine and myself. What's the difference between those two iterations or generations of Green MPs? Um, The first first one was um, a, a... group of people who individually had very high public profiles outside of parliament and communities that they brought into the kaupapa and um, so they were experienced, they were highly experienced in the political realm in various ways, particularly activist politics um, and brought a constituency with them and so that first that first caucus I think, and I was kind of part of that, I was the end of that um, and uh, um, and represented if you like the Māori constituency, like that was that was that was that experience that I think is the reason why I was um, put high enough on the list to get in. Um, and and our job was to build, take the green kaupapa and take it out to our particular communities that we were already connected to and to be that bridge, yep. you know. Um, but I think in the second one, because the organisation had been really strongly built then on the kaupapa itself, with all of that input already from those communities already inside the Green Cope at that point, if that makes yep, sense. Yep. So we brought it in, we brought everybody, the outside world, into the Greens. And then that, that from that group, um, the, the, the second generation are much more connected to the breadth of issues that the Greens are now um, part of. So that it's not about us individually having um, constituencies, but that we are able to connect to and relate to all of those constituencies yep. because we grew out of the collective of them. Does, yep. does that sort of make yeah, sense? Yeah, I, I think so. And I remember being an activist, and you know, every election was sort of a battle to, to get over that 5% mm. threshold. Whereas now it's a question, you know, are we going to get 15%? Yeah, and yeah well, 12 or 25? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, that is not a target, if any journalist will um, <laughs> um, But yeah, I think that's why. So yeah. um, and I, when I was campaigning for co-leader, I campaigned on the basis of 
um, professionalising the caucus, which was a bit of a challenge. But the reason for that is that being a member of parliament is a very specific kind of job. Um, it needs a specific set of skills, and and being a great activist or a great campaigner doesn't necessarily give you the skills to be a great MP. And so we need to be thinking when we think about our representatives here, what are the, what is the full skill set that we need in the members of parliament who represent the Korean Kopapa, and that includes that breadth of connection to all those constituencies and all of the specific skills you need just to do the job. Um, and I think that's what the Green Party has delivered, actually. The, increasingly, um, the most professional caucus, every caucus gets more yep. professional as we go, at this job of being members of parliament representing our Green Party. And it's such a diverse job. Yes. You know, you, you're juggling all these balls all the time. You've got to give a speech, you've got to research, you've got to do media stuff. Yep. You've got to be intellectually sort of engaged yep. with really thorny, tricky issues. Yeah, you've got but to then carry... have a high emotional quotient yes. that you can go out and yeah. talk to people. That's right. You've got to have, yeah, that's exactly right. All this compassion for the things that you're doing, plus all this kind of instinct. Like, so much of politics is just instinct and you can't learn that. I, actually, I think that um, that you come naturally with that and that's what makes you good at this job. So yeah, it's actually quite complicated. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why, you know, it's it's such it's so hard hard fought for for everybody who wants to be an MP. Um, but that's why we need to make wise decisions. And the guess the challenge for us is stepping up maybe at the next election into a ministerial role, which yeah. is a whole new sort of skill set. Yes. What would you like to be minister of? Oh um, I'll take any of the socials. <laughs> um and I take any of the environmentals too, but I mean, I think this, uh, my, my experience would be best used in the social portfolios. Yep. Um, something like social development would be amazing um, because I've got all the experience of having been subjected to it as well as yep. um, now many years of um, being involved in it. At a, I guess Paula Bennett shows though, you can have had oh, that experience, lose, yeah. but you can push that ladder out behind you. Yeah, yeah, no, totally, totally. And that's what needs to be restored. We won't get, we won't get, um, a restoration, I don't think, in the in the faith of government to be genuinely responsive until we have MPs who don't forget yep. um, what their lives were like. Well, you've got the housing portfolio, and that's been probably the biggest political issue yep. of this term. Uh, no matter what the government says, we, we do have a housing crisis. What, what do you think is behind that? Oh, it's just neglect, and it's um, you know there's been a particularly forceful neglect by National. I mean, they are picking up their policies from the 90s when they were selling off a huge amount of state housing then too, and they've just continued with that. Even John Key State House, it's such a symbol. <laughs> no, no, like God, have you, yeah, it's right. This is this is the forgetfulness. It's, it's deliberate. Mm. It's 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 willful. Um, so. Uh, um, so in housing, Nationals picked up its previous policies from the 90s, which were disastrous then and are still disastrous. But also, we actually haven't, um, as, a, as a government across the board, there hasn't been a, a focus on what is the changing nature of housing and New Zealand's demographic. Like, there hasn't actually been any planning on what New Zealand's housing needs are going to look like or infrastructure needs look like. And one of the biggest problems, I think, from governments across the board has been a complete failure of any kind of planning for what, what are we going to look like in 2020 or 2030 or 2050 and all of the things that need to be in place to make sure that our families are doing great through that whole period. And because, because of that, the government's just being business as usual um, and uh, there's been a massive structural failure as a result. Well, I was just thinking about it. On the necessities of life, they've totally failed in terms of shelter, housing, yeah. in terms of water. You know, we can't <laughs> swim in our rivers. We've got water contamination crisis. Yeah. And then kids are going hungry at yeah. school. Yeah. 
food, water, shelter. I mean, for God's sake, this is, this is <laughs> like, what is the point of government if it's not to make sure that those basics of people being able to live decent lives are there? It's not. It's not hard. It's not hard work. It's just a question of whether you're paying attention. But I guess yep. if you're um, paying attention to, you know, your buddies at Sky City, you're not paying yep. attention to the people living in the rural areas who, yeah. So what would we see if Materia Ture was uh, Minister of Housing after three years? <laughs> um, after three years, you would see um, a significant increase in the building in, of um, state housing. There would be quite a lot of, there would be a huge piece of work in working with state house tenants on how state housing needs to change. Um, when I went overseas and had a look at these housing projects over there, um, social and or state and um, affordable housing, much of the work that councils, because that's how it works over there really, it's the cities that do it, we're working on working with the communities themselves on the kind of housing they need and the, if they were going to be rebuilding housing, what that housing would look like so that the families who were going to live there had some agency over what was going on. Yep. And that just that just actually builds the commitment so you don't get the glean in a um, horrific disaster that we've had. And if you don't involve people in the decisions you're making about the basic things like where they're going to live and how they're going to live there, you know, you just you're not going to get any kind of buy-in. So we have to be really careful to make sure that people are involved at the first stage. Well, another area you've put a huge amount of work into this term is learning te reo, and it's been really cool to watch you all your parliamentary questions <laughs> now in te reo. How, how's that experience gone? Oh, it's terrifying. It's still terrifying. Every time I do a new question, it's like a whole new set of language as well. So I've got to. It's a bit scary. Um, it's going all right, although I kind of need to. You know, it's quite hard just making sure I'm, I'm constantly on it. In in a with a weird kind of life like mine, where I'm working most of the time, um, I don't speak a lot in casual casually, like to yeah. about ordinary things. So most of my language is formal rather than casual, and that means that I'm getting better at the formal side, but not very much at the conversational side. And that's quite hard to figure out how to. And is that because there aren't that many people you can speak casually yes, with? Yes, and because we don't, and because you don't speak casually much. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. So when, you, <laughs> when you're in the work environment, you're talking work stuff, yeah. and if you that's where you are most of the time, then um, that's what you're going to do. And even when I'm out and about, I'm working. I'm not just talking about stuff, but um, and I'm not necessarily talking to anybody who speaks the deal either. So, uh, yeah, finding casual conversation is actually quite a bit harder, yeah. but. Oh, well, I've got huge respect for you and a little bit jealous because I think it's so wonderful what you're doing. Um, and I haven't had the courage to, to do it. <laughs> uh, I just need to, you know, devote some time. Um, but one of the, it, I mean, I, I really support the idea of all of our kids should be learning today mm -hmm. in school. Yeah. You know, we should have bilingual signs. One of the coolest little ideas, and it comes from where my whanau comes from in Wales, is they mandated that advertising agencies had to use some of the Welsh language. Oh, true. And so what you got is some of the most creative people using the language oh. in that sort of casual, you know, uh, sense. Oh, that's clever. I, mean, I think this is, for us, um, Maori TV gives us that opportunity, but it doesn't get out as far enough into the mainstream. And TV one is tricky. <laughs> <laughs> TV and said. So, um, but yeah, something, anything like that, that would, that would I mean, it's people would, could squeal like anything if you tried to mandate um, advertising ag agencies to do it. But it is the own, one of the few ways that we've got of actually making language be present. Yeah. Um, and they can make it fun yeah. and interesting. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And yeah, just not keep relying on um, individual families or community organisations to do it because it's, it's, it, the language will really suffer if, if we don't do 
be something serious soon. Well, I'd love to see the day where we've got a Prime Minister who's fluent, Oh, for my example. God. That would be so cool. Okay, the one after me. Yeah. Oh, maybe you, maybe you met that 25% you're accounting for. <laughs> yeah, that's right. At least thirdly and, and lastly, I mean, looking at politics, I mean, you've been such a prominent champion for kids. And you've said recently, you know, we need to make sure there's a minister for children with clear measures of child poverty. Yeah. What else would you like to see? Oh, um, we need to do, it's not just the measure, the, we, we need to do all the data and the measuring of poverty. We need to set targets for its reduction. Um, we also need to do um, the assessments of legislation on children and, um, and broaden it out much beyond the kind of social legislation because actually there's a heap of treasury decisions and transport decisions and other infrastructure decisions. Um, decisions about uh, like housing New Zealand if they're going to be building houses um, in new communities like how they're making sure those places are safe for children both inside the home but also outside like the driveway yep. desk. so there's a whole kind of child focus that you can lay over everything and um, it would it would um, start to make our decision making human scale I think yeah um, not just in terms of urban design and kind of that sort of stuff but actually always thinking about the effect on the people who have the least opportunity to exercise power and that is not there's just no no consideration of that well i've only got 10 questions left to you but there's oh, a seri- series of rapid <laughs> fire answers yeah. no no it's great uh so here's 10 quick questions what suburbs your castle in uh it's in waititi or it used to be called waititi in the old days <laughs> what's your pet's name i've uh axel and timmy favorite recipe to cook um Oh, uh, Thai, Thai beef. It's really, it's all fresh and yummy. What's the name of the private member's bill you currently have in the ballot? Um, it's the Child Poverty uh, and Definition and Reduction Bill, I think. Snappy. <laughs> like, yeah, I know. No, not the sexiest name ever. What's the worst job you've ever done? Oh, um... Oh... I worked in a I worked in a dairy. It wasn't so it wasn't bad though, like the people were fine, but the smell of the lollies used to make me sick. Yeah. Yeah, every day. It was awful. It was I think weird. it was my kid's dream job. I know, I know, you'd think you'd think, right? Who's an MP in another party you respect the most? Um, okay, I have a huge amount of um, time and energy for Jacinda Ardoon. I think that she does a really good job and Annette King Tom spending more and more time with her in understanding why it is that she's stuck around for so long. She's quite a thing. Force of nature. Formidable, yep. Favourite movie? Um, oh, Bad Boy Bubby, with a very fine um, difference between that and Lebowski, the big Lebowski. And what books on your bedside? Am I allowed read? to say that? Yeah. <laughs> what, what book are you reading at the moment? Um, I've just finished, uh, oh god, the, the, the last one, the final of the passage, that series, about, you know, like post-apocalyptic vampires, yeah, um, that was quite good, and the one before that was The Night Circus, which was this cute little romantic tale about the circus. Nice. We've already talked about your law degree, but did you study anything else? Oh, I really, I studied anthropology and archaeology, which is still my, um, absolute love, and I had to give it up when I did law. Because I couldn't, I had to, I had a baby, I had to quickly get my law degree, I couldn't afford another year. That's super cool though. <laughs> yeah, it was. And my favourite question I love asking MPs is, what's in your bag that you carry with you everywhere you go on your work travels? <laughs> uh, crochet and embroidery. I cannot, I cannot leave home without it anywhere at the moment. It's, um, yeah. 
it's fun. It's really fun. It's good to do. Well, it's been awesome to chat with you, Matt. Uh, thank you for your time. All good. And the last segment is your 30-second elevator pitch. So 30 seconds on anything you want. <laughs> okay, 30 seconds. Um, just, I'm really looking forward to the Christmas break, and I'm sure that everybody is. And it's going to be really great to have a good, safe, um, good, safe Christmas break. And I hope that, in particular, the media kind of have a think about the last little while and um, whether the pressures are on them to kind of perform in that kind of Trumpish kind of way. Um, and if so, I think that that's something we should be avoiding for New Zealand politics. I think New Zealanders deserve really clear, really um, high quality media over this next election campaign. Um, and we'll do our best to provide that. Um, and I hope that others do too. Oh, kia ora, Merry Christmas. Kia ora. Thanks very much for listening to Green MPs in a Podcast. Follow the Green MPs on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Snapchat. This podcast was recorded and shared with resources from parliamentary services. Please share it and rate it on iTunes or your favourite podcast website so more people can find it. Thank you for listening.